Welcome to Dig Deeper, MindEdge Learning's very occasional podcast on critical thinking and creativity. I'm Frank Connolly. In today's episode, we are going to feature a conversation I had recently via the miracle of Skype with Dr. Rex Young, Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at the University of New Mexico and a leading expert on creativity and also on intelligence. Rex shares uh, his thoughts on the latest research into the neuroscience of creativity and also on the links between creativity and intelligence. So as uh, Warner Wolf would like to say, let's go to the tape. I was just wondering if we could just start off just with, you know, your best working definition of creativity and, you know, what it is and, and how it relates to our brains. Uh, well, that's a, kind of a big question, but the uh, uh, best definition of creativity comes to us from uh, Stein in the 1950s, which is something that is both novel and useful. I like that dichotomy because it creates a tension in the brain, the novelty generation portion of creativity and then the utility portion. So these are kind of diametrically opposed. You can have the novel things that are useless and you you can have uh, useful things that are not very novel. So there is this kind of sweet spot that uh, uh, approaches novelty on the one hand and then utility on the other that I think is, is really the sweet spot of creativity that uh, um, I think is highly adaptive in terms of brain structure and function and particularly unique to humans in that it really, at least in the last, I don't know, 30,000 years or so, and particularly in the last 5,000 years, really has seen an explosion of technological advance uh, for our species over recent history. So so creativity really is more than just thinking outside the box. The, the added element of utility is what sort of distinguishes it. Uh, I know that you did a lot uh, of research earlier in your career in, on intelligence. And if you could just sort of tell us how intelligence and creativity are different and, and how they might be similar. Yeah, we have a recent article actually in Neuropsychologia, which is a um, neuroscience journal, which looks at the interplay of intelligence and creativity. So your listeners, I guess, might be interested in that if you want some really dry reading. But uh, there are uh, uh, overlaps of intelligence and creativity and some uh, differences. I, I look at intelligence as rapid and accurate problem solving. It's very highly adaptive brain features that uh, animals and humans, human animals and uh, lower animals and perhaps even bacteria possess to solve environmental problems rapidly um, yet accurately. So if, again, if you don't go too fast, you might start making mistakes. And then if you, if you really focus on making accurate responses, it really slows you down. So again, that sweet spot of rapid and accurate response solving is kind of the sweet spot of intelligence that has some overlap uh, with creativity. You want um, to produce things somewhat rapidly and have some accuracy, but uh, you can see that the, the push towards novel and useful problem solving is a somewhat different problem space than rapid and accurate problem solving. I look at creativity as relatively low probability problems that come up in the environment. So, you know, the 100-year flood or the earthquake or the end of a long relationship or the, the, the drought um, what are we going to do now? You know, crap, things have really uh, hit the fan. That really uh, adaptive problem that is very low frequency, but yet um, in our everyday lives, we uh, are also doing 
novel and useful problem solving at a lower level. The rapid and accurate problem solving of intelligence happens every day, kind of the, the, the natural efficiency of how we get to work and how we put on our clothes and how we organize our desktop, how we write papers, how we speak to other people. It's, it's very efficient. It's, it's uh, refined over time. It's very adaptive, but it's a different problem space than creativity. Now, for layman like myself, they, we, you know, we sort of grew up hearing about left brain and right brain. Uh, and that the right brain is creative, and and your research suggests that that's not a, an oversimplification. If you could sort of hold forth on why left brain, right brain is not quite accurate, and what you feel is the, a, a more accurate representation. Yeah, it's not only not quite accurate; it's completely wrong. But uh, <laughs> it takes your whole brain to be uh, creative. It takes your whole brain to be intelligent. Um, but there are certain parts of the brain that are active or less active at different times of the creative process, different times of the intelligence process, and the right brain conundrum that we still fight against uh, really sprung up at the advent of split brain patients. Uh, two researchers, Ferry and Gazaniga, did research with patients undergoing brain surgery to help with uh, epilepsy, and they discovered that the two hemispheres of the brain function differently, and rather independently of one another when you uh, severed the connections of the two hemispheres and that the left brain was somewhat more logical and analytical and language was localized in the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere was more synthetic and nonverbal and visual spatial and and that maybe some uh, artistic elements resided in the in the right hemisphere more than the left but I guarantee you that uh, removing major portions of your left hemisphere will leave you less creative uh, or have less tools in your toolbox to be creative you really need math and reading and language and all of those major elements to uh, to be creative with and and without your left hemisphere uh, most of those go away. Um, you need, need many elements from your right hemisphere. You need lots of brain to do creative things, which is at the apex of human endeavors. So it takes a lot of brain structure and a lot of brain function from both left and right hemispheres to, to do the creative thing. In one of your papers that you discussed the three brain networks and how they work together and sometimes work against each other in the in the creative process. Could you explain that, please? Yeah, so as we have, you know, over the last 10 years started to kind of disentangle what parts of the brain were working when in the creative process, we started to really reveal three major brain networks that were working in tandem. They comprise, you know, 75% of the brain. Uh, so it's really a major territory of the brain that we're talking about. But the default mode network is is more of that novelty generation uh, element of uh, creative uh, cognition where you are more internally focused and thinking, uh, doing imaginative work or thinking about your relationships, thinking about the future, doing prospective thinking. That default mode network is really engaged in putting pieces, elements of things together in novel ways that uh, might not have been looked at before. Cognitive control network is really involved in down-selecting the best idea, the, the uh, usefulness of that idea, and uh, then refining that idea uh, over time. And it, it, it is uh, overlapping significantly with the intelligence network so that uh, really you are trying to make the best choice that might be best to push out into the world. And then the salience network is kind of a very affectively laden or feeling laden uh, network that is involved in how these interact with each other. And I think 
there is some switching back and forth or seesawing, if you will, or blending of these networks during the creative process where salience networks helps uh, to integrate the work of the novelty generation versus the down selecting uh, in real time. So these three networks that again comprise almost 75% of the brain would be uh, integral to that novelty useful dichotomy. And, and again, I'm, I may have imperfectly understood uh, some of the stuff that I that I have read, but it, what I've read seems to suggest that certain networks are less active, uh, for, like the uh, the executive network or the cognitive control network is is less active when perhaps the default network is generating more ideas. There's there's some evidence to suggest that they've done research with improvisational musicians, uh, rap artists, and jazz artists, and. And in fMRI studies, you see some downregulation in the cognitive control network when people are in that, that flow state or that improvising state uh, that musicians can uh, do when they are in the groove or in the mode of improvising. And you can see that the default mode network, at least uh, in brain uh, imaging studies, is more active and the cognitive control network, the downregulation thing, is, is less active. So... There's some evidence to suggest that there is a uh, lessening or a dampening of the breaks of the frontal lobes, at least, in, in that flow state where improvisers or jazz improvisers and rap improvisers uh, work. So there's some compelling evidence of this back and forth of these networks in, in that particular design, that particular uh, cohort, that I think uh, might work with... Uh, with other groups as well. Um, you can imagine that uh, this uh, analogy can hold true when people are in the shower and uh, thinking up all their great ideas or in a dream, in a reverie, and uh, all your ideas seem a little better than, uh, than, than reality. But when you wake up, it's like, oh, that's a silly idea. That's, that'll never work. So uh, there's a downregulation of the filters that otherwise would be in place during those those flow states or those those less inhibited states. Now, um, does the does the flow state sort of relate to this wonderful phrase I encountered, uh, transient uh, hypofrontality? I think so. Yeah, I think uh, transient hypofrontality is is uh, related to that flow state where uh, the brakes are off the system and the error checkers are are sent away momentarily, where um, you are generating creative output and the uh, novelty generators are uh, at their maximum and the error checkers are at their minimum. So that transient hypofrontality is uh, transient by nature, but uh, uh, it feels good to have uh, all your ideas uh, be good and feel good in that, uh, in that flow state. But once you get out of that transient phase, uh, are you likely to forget the ideas that you had or should you write them down or how do you deal with the transience of that? So flow can be a bit different. You can be in a flow state where you are doing creative output, but often it is a flow state of um, not just idea generation, uh, but flow state where you are doing something like you're a jazz musician or you are an artist where you just get lost in your art, you get lost in your musical uh uh, product. It's usually people that are highly adept in a certain uh, topical area, and they put in the so-called 10,000 hours or 10 years of work and really become expert in that, and they really don't have to think much about the mechanics of doing that thing. And so they can just let it rip and perform and uh, basically uh, improvise and do some creative work 
Um, it's not something that you would necessarily write down, but it's something that might produce an idea that's worth catching for posterity. Now, I know that in common discourse, people tend to associate creativity with, with the arts, whether, whether it's music or writing or other, but obviously creativity applies to uh, you know other endeavors as well, business creativity, inventors, etc. Are you aware of, uh, are there differences in brain activity around different types of creativity, or is that something yet to be determined? Um, I'm convinced that this creative thing that we do is probably a central brain attribute and that there is domain specificity around that central brain attribute. So the novelty generation and down selection, we talked about these different brain networks, is probably common across entrepreneurs and poets and basketball, you know, Michael Jordans of the world. LeBron James would be a more topical uh, <laughs> LeBron James of the world. But that uh, there's some domain specificity. So if you're a basketball player, if you're LeBron James, you're really going to be pulling from some domain specificity residing in the motor cortex and the cerebellum and lots of wonderful motor uh, 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 domain specificity. Same with musicians. You're going to have some very highly developed motor specificity and motor talent uh, in your hands and fingers and, and, and whatnot uh, if you play a musical instrument. If you're an entrepreneur, it's going to be a bit more diffuse where you are uh, more extroverted and more risk-taking and you know some personality variables and some more uh, uh, ethereal types of uh, variables that come to play. If you're a scientist, you really have to know about the scientific method and you have to know how to be a bit risky in your question asking and inquiry of how the world works to find something that is novel because a lot of stuff has been, you know, work to death in the scientific field. So to find something truly novel, you have to look in under some different rocks to find something. Uh, so uh, I, I think that you, you develop some domain specificity that resides in different parts of your brain, whether it's the you know parietal lobe for reading, writing, arithmetic, or the motor cortex for um, music and the arts, the visual cortex for uh, painting, you know, different types of domain specificity, but that central creative thing, I think, is common to them all. And the people talk a lot about the aha moment, the moment of inspiration, but there's a lot to creativity that goes before that and after that. Is there, is there not different stages? Can you hold forth on that a bit, please? Yeah, I think the aha moment gets a lot of uh, attention just because it's so cool when it happens, but for most of us, it doesn't ever happen. <laughs> you never have that that massive insight that uh, it's like it all just clicks into place. I've rarely uh, had that so-called aha moment and there's just a lot of fumbling around until things kind of work and then fumbling around a little more until it works a little better. This so-called aha moment sounds like a good idea, but I think it is just a different uh, conception. It's a snapshot of the creative process, which with the focus on the idea writ large that uh, seems perfectly placed, the, not the, the perfect novel useful idea that seems to have sprung forth like, uh, what is it, Pallas Athena from Zeus's head, <laughs> a fully formed, and uh, it's actually a lot went into it before, before this fully formed idea sprung forth from one's head. So I'm a bit skeptical about the so-called so aha moment. There is a lot of things, that, as you say, that happened before, this thing happened and a lot of things that uh, go into refining this uh, idea after it happened. It's a snapshot of a movie that's playing. So I think it's a, an interesting snapshot, but it uh, ignores the underlying movie. And we, we spoke briefly before about 
the difference between intelligence and creativity. Uh, I want now to try and get a, a, a different distinction, which is the difference between creativity and, and genius. Is creativity something that everyone has and genius is LeBron James or someone yeah. like that? LeBron James certainly is a genius uh, in his in his domain, and you can probably um, find uh, the so-called uh, one in ten thousand or one in a million person in each um, field. They're relatively rare, but there's someone that there's someone that has incredible. Uh, in in my conception, and I've done some thinking about this, it's someone who has both incredible intelligence and an incredible creativity. Uh, in that particular domain. So someone that is has rapid and accurate problem solving, LeBron would certainly qualify uh, in that domain. And someone who has novel and useful problem solving, LeBron certainly qualifies uh, in that uh, domain. So that in incredible combination, usually most of us either get some dose of intelligence or some dose of creativity. And all of us are both somewhat intelligent and somewhat creative. That's part of being human. We have uh, that those capacities, but we get more or less of each, just as we get more height and less uh, hair or something like that. I'm, I'm familiar with that part, the less hair part. Present, present company excluded. Uh, so, so, you know, it's like we get different uh, physical capacities and we get different mental capacities in different degrees. But I think genius is so rare because it's just exceptional intelligence, exceptional creativity. Uh, in a particular domain, and that's why it's so rare is you get uh, a double dose of both of those. So is it the case that um, certain people, just because of the way their brain is configured, are going to naturally be more creative than others? Uh, probably. You're asking a question that seems to imply that there is some genetic component to this. Well, there's genetic component to everything. There's genetic component to your height and your hair and and probably your creativity. We know that uh, with intelligence, uh, about half of your intelligence is genetically uh, determined, about half of it is environmentally determined. So uh, the same would be true of creativity, that about half of it would be genetically uh, determined, this novelty generation, utility, some people are gonna be more or less better at that based on what their parents gave them from their genes, and uh, the, the other half is gonna be come from environmental influences, what they are able to develop over time. I, I think that uh, our best starting estimate for any contribution of heritability is is about 50%. Now, I have very limited creative abilities, but to the extent that I have any, I do the, I do the Times crossword puzzle every day. Uh, and, and I do find that sometimes when I'm stumped, I have the answer when I wake up. Is that, uh, and that seems to be in, in doing a lot of the reading about, uh, about creativity, that seems to be a fairly common occurrence, either sleeping or exercising or is that, does that go back into that hypofrontality or it goes back into lots of things with brain functioning, a lot of creative aspects, a lot of aspects about uh, creativity in the brain apply to memory and working memory and attention and other things that go into creative cognition. So uh, we know that uh, your, your brain continues to work when you sleep and that you're continuing to consolidate memories while you sleep. Your brain is continuing to work and associate problems and fire those neurons that you were working during the day so that, that that crossword puzzle, that problem that you were working during the day will continue to resonate in the neurons in your brain and that it might uh, click in the so-called aha moment uh, unbeknownst to you uh, while you were sleeping. And uh, then you wake up and it's like, ah, there it is. The, the neurons have pulled that together in such a way 
that there's a good fit and you can see if it actually fits in the space the next morning. So it's the way that the brain works. It continues to work while we sleep and to consolidate information to strengthen the connections between the neurons while we sleep. And, and that's uh, normal functioning of memory consolidation. It's more normal functioning of uh, creative cognition. Now, one of the things, especially in the business world, people get together for brainstorming sessions designed to generate creative ideas. Is that a good way to, to go about the creative process or are there downsides to it? Some of the best evidence that we have shows that, that type of activity inhibits creativity more than it uh, facilitates it. That people, the social uh, pressures to conform really force people to uh, suppress expression of ideas in that group setting. It's just kind of human nature or uh, monkey nature, I guess, to try to fit in, to go along, to get along. And that um, some of the most creative ideas, the most, the ones that deviate from the norm, the so-called outside of the box ideas, are going to be socially unacceptable at some level um, and non-conforming by definition. So the group idea will inevitably be less creative than if each individual had thought up their most creative idea and then brought it to the group that then, you know, voted on the most creative idea because those ideas would otherwise be inhibited in a group setting. So then again, just a, a real little question. What, what can people do to enhance their own creativity, to become more creative? Or is there anything <laughs> they can do? If I knew that, I would have written a book by now like everyone else, but uh, <laughs> and be on a book book tour with you instead of just an interview. But most people know what the space uh, that they need to be more creative and how they are creative. Some people like a warm bath. Some people like a long walk. Some people need it very noisy and go to a cafe where there's a cacophony of activity around them and they can be creative in that. Um, some people need it absolutely quiet. It's different for different people. Creative people know what works for them. That does not mean that it will work for you because people are as different as the faces that <laughs> adorn our bodies. So it kind of People need to find what works for them and do more of that. You know, for me, the joke I have is uh, I have a large lawn, almost an acre of lawn that I mow. And uh, some of my best ideas come when I'm mowing the lawn. I discovered kind of by accident that that repetitive activity of going back and forth and letting my mind wander while I'm just mowing the lawn, I'm just thinking about lots of different crazy things. And my body is engaged in a repetitive activity, but my mind gets to roam free. And I just came across that by happenstance. And I can't mow my lawn every day. But uh, I do know that that's a good time for me to kind of let the let my mind wander and see if a creative idea emerges. So we know that getting out of your regular routine can help see things differently and see ideas differently. Travel helps spur creative ideas uh, because you're by definition out of your comfort zone, um, seeing things uh, slightly differently. I mean, there's suggestions and books and books of the last chapter is by definition supposed to be the 10 ideas that will make you more creative but uh, all of those books are flawed because we just don't know and it is uh, individual differences will rule and people have to find their own muse if you will to see what helps them and if, if something doesn't work try something different. Well, that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Dr. Rex Young at the University of New Mexico for joining us via Skype uh, and sharing some really fascinating insights with us. 
And we will be back soon with another episode of Dig Deeper, Mind Edge Learning's very occasional podcast on critical thinking and creativity.